You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn. Welcome to The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series on everything in the nonprofit and philanthropic world. Today we have a very special guest, Lisa Gerwich. I've known Lisa for about 30 years, and in the past we've collaborated, studied together, and we even share the same birthday. Lisa is the president and CEO of Delivering Good, a nonprofit organization that unites retailers, manufacturers, foundations, and individuals to provide people impacted by poverty and tragedy with new merchandise. Lisa assumed the role in 2015 and brings a passion for addressing unmet community needs to the role. Her past professional experience includes serving as Senior VP Institutional Advancement for World Learning, a global platform for education, exchange, and development programs that advance leadership. She also enjoyed an 18-year tenure in various roles in the Jewish Community Endowment Fund of the Jewish Community Federation of San Francisco, the Peninsula Marin and Sonoma counties. Now that's a mouthful, including a stint as executive director overseeing approximately $2 billion of philanthropic assets. Lisa previously practiced law in San Francisco and Chicago, where she specialized in commercial real estate and financial transactions. She holds a JD from George Washington University and a BA in economics from Vanderbilt, and is a graduate of the Wexner Heritage and the Mandel Executive Development Programs. Welcome, Lisa. Gary, thank you so much for having me. It is a delight to be here. You've had so many guests who I've known for a long time, so I feel like I'm in great company. Well, you certainly are. Um, can you share a little bit with us about your path from law school and being a lawyer and businesswoman to the nonprofit executive you are today? Sure, and I would say, Gary, for your listeners who think that the career path is always a very clear trajectory, for me, it was not. I never expected to be in the nonprofit world. Um, I was very focused as a student. I spent three years in college, went straight to law school, straight into practice, um, and I was a commercial real estate and finance transaction lawyer, never went to court. Um, but after I had my two kids, um, who are now quite grown, I had the feeling that I wanted my career to engage, to enable me to engage more in the community and to give back more. So I was a lawyer who loved practicing law, uh, but then was presented 30 years ago with the opportunity to do exactly what I had hoped, which was to give back um, in the Jewish world. Again, not something I expected. I joined the Jewish Community Federation of San Francisco um, in the endowment department. I was fortunate to have an amazing mentor in Phyllis Cook and to work with extraordinary volunteer and professional leaders. I spent 18 years at the Federation during that time. Uh, the assets of the endowment fund increased from around 85 million to at one point almost $3 billion under management. So it was an incredible experience. Um, and then made a big switch to the East Coast 
um, and got involved in international development, exchange, and education uh, with an organization called World Learning, an organization whose programs in Spain and Mexico I had participated in when I was in high school. So it was a, class, a, a chance to give back um, in another arena that I cared very much about. Then six and a half years ago, I was recruited to join Delivering Good, a successful nonprofit merger. Um, and so I've been here for the last six and a half years, um, working, as you mentioned, with retailers, with big brands, um, with all kinds of organizations that have consumer products that they are willing to give to people in need all over the United States and abroad. Um, and as you said, we have provided over $2 billion of new products to people in need. But it's not really about the number. It's about providing things that people need in order to have a fresh start with a vision of creating a more equitable world. That's a wonderful uh, story uh, of how you move from one end of the business world to the other end of the nonprofit sector, but you still have a business aspect of it to everything you do now. That's very true. Um, at Delivering Good, we are really operating a business, a business that enables other businesses uh, to have an environmentally sustainable solution for excess inventory. Uh, so I have an incredible team, very small but mighty team, um, and we get excess products from where they are to where they are needed most. And so that is like running a business. At the same time, we have this greater vision of enabling people to have a fresh start, individuals experiencing poverty, homelessness, people re-entering the workforce after incarceration, people who have experienced domestic abuse, needy military families, and of course, people who have experienced natural disasters. So there is absolutely a charitable component. Um, and even the consumer that buys something in a, in a store can help. You seem to have worked on both sides of the philanthropic table as a donor advisor and executive in the foundation world, and then now as a nonprofit executive. How does your experiences in both fields contribute to your success and how are they similar and different in, in the way you do things? It's a great question. And I think that being on each side of the table helps inform you about the other. So I have certainly um, had many experiences raising money and we have to raise our budget every single day. Uh, when I left private practice, one of the partners in the law firm that I left um, called me up to congratulate me and wish me the best. And he said, you know, when you work in the nonprofit world, you have to ask people for money. And I said, yes, I do expect to be doing that. Um, but I really feel like it's, it's not so much asking people for money, it's offering people an opportunity to make a difference in the world. So I've asked a lot of people um, to support the causes that I've been involved with, both as a professional and as a volunteer. Um, had, I've managed the philanthropic funds for many individuals and families, and now do that in the corporate arena as well, um, have developed programs and have helped give the money away. And so seeing the philanthropic um, continuum from all sides, I think makes us better at each stage. Mm -hmm. Very good. What is the greatest challenge you face being the executive running your own organization? Well, there are a lot of great challenges. Um, first of all, the challenges of the last year and a half during COVID were 
unlike any other business cycle or thing that we've experienced. I had thought that um, the business cycle of 2008 had been a big challenge, um, but this was just so unexpected. And I think, um, especially having trained as a lawyer, you always think that you're one of the smart people in the room. And it was very useful for me to hear from major business leaders that no one knew exactly what to do um, during the pandemic. Um, so one of the challenges is just to uh, respond and get ahead of every business cycle. Um, the work we do at Delivering Good is affected by so many aspects of the business world, um, whether it's people feeling like they can't support charitably, or if it's supply chain issues, we deal with all of those. Um, but we found during the last year and a half, first of all, we provided the most product we had ever done in our 35 year history. Uh, so we try to get ahead of whatever we can and just respond to the needs. Did you have more product available to you because people just weren't buying product in the stores or were there other reasons why there was just more product last year? Combination. Um, one of the factors was the retail apocalypse. So with so many companies having to keep their stores closed for so long, they had seasonal merchandise that no longer had a place because as the next season came in, some the merchandise had to go somewhere. It also forced people to look in their warehouses and their distribution centers and to really clean out. Um, so we were able to provide a really good home for over $282 million worth of merchandise. But even more importantly, that was almost 70 million units, Gary, of merchandise, everything from PPE to shoes for um, nurses and doctors who were on their feet 24 seven, blankets um, in the Javits Center in New York when there were COVID victims there, um, every, every imaginable kind of thing. Um, so some of it had to do with retail, um, but we always are talking with companies about providing what is needed most. So we encourage companies to actually manufacture items that we can't get enough of. Underwear, for example, um, there's always such a great need for underwear, socks, just basic items that um, provide people with dignity and self-esteem. You are listening to The Road to Philanthropy. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. All right, they say that the most important thing that homeless people need are socks because it protects their feet and, and they don't always have the right shoes on and things of that nature. Um, Gary, it's very true. In fact, during COVID, I actually um, was in Los Angeles and was out um, with a group of people from the um, the local the mayor's office and, and other um, government officials, and we were visiting some folks who were living on the street. And in some cases, um, they've had their socks on for a week or two. So when they remove those socks, they're actually, um, it becomes a medical condition. And we were at a center that had been set up to provide showers. So these are really quite critical issues, um, but they're also tangible issues. And there are many, many people that want to do something that they can actually touch and feel and see the impact that they've made. I recently went on the board of a nonprofit in LA called Safe Parking LA. Actually, I just interviewed the CEO for the podcast right before yours, which will be released next week. 
And that organization basically provides parking lots at night for people who live in their vehicles to safely have a place to go and uh, have bathroom facilities, etc. And they're going to be combining themselves with We Hope, which is a Bay Area nonprofit that has vehicles, trucks and vans and large vehicles that provide showers and washing machines and dryers for uh, the unhoused uh, uh, community. So it's a very interesting kind of dynamic that's going on right now. Well, it's a very important dynamic. And um, you may know that this, this kind of becomes a family affair. My sister has been very engaged um, in educating people about um, young people, especially who are experiencing homelessness and wrote an award-winning article um, for the LA Times about the young people, some of whom have jobs, many of whom are students who are living on the streets, living in cars, um, living in um, less than optimal situations. Right. Um, going back to your work, what excites you about the work that you do? What gets you up every morning and, and gets you out the door? Well, what gets me up, what gets me excited every day is the opportunity to inspire people to make a difference. And in the work that we're doing, um, there is an unlimited need for people to get engaged. And so we're really trying to create a movement around companies, around individuals, consumers being engaged in our mission. It's the right time to do it because every company these days knows that people wanna buy from companies that are doing good things. People wanna work for companies that are doing good things. And they say it's millennials. I think we all wanna support companies that are doing good things. And there's a very different perspective um, on corporate social responsibility than there was 10 or 15 years ago. Um, so now is the time for companies not just to post a message on LinkedIn, but to really do it. And we give them the chance to do it and to do it every single day in their local communities, to be part of this national movement. And as you can see from our website, um, major, major brands are involved, but startups are too. Right. You know, 20 years ago, there were only a couple of companies that were really involved in, in corporate philanthropy in the way of volunteerism. Levi's always had a, a, an active program uh, and, you know, then Mark Benioff came around and, and had his 1% theory of time of employees giving to volunteer work and 1% of their profits going to charity. And I think that's growing more and more. Patagonia also back in the 70s and 80s was uh, very much into the environmental movement at the time and still are today. You know, Gary, it's it's not optional anymore. In fact, I, I was recently um, part of an article in a publication that I never expected to be in. It's the American Bar Association Landslide Magazine. Mm -hmm. If everybody could see us on Zoom, they would see this magazine. It's the um, section of intellectual property law. And um, what I said was that corporate social responsibility isn't a nice to have anymore. It's mandatory for public companies. Um, they have requirements. There are more and more ratings of authorities that are going to be evaluating the environmental, social, and governance issues. Everyone, of course, is talking about um, justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, companies need to really walk the walk. It's not just an enough to say something um, internally and externally. And the companies that we work with really do do it. 
Well, I think there's a, a great impact on the work environment now that people are much more aware and want to be involved, and especially the, the, the millennials are coming into the workforce and uh, wanting to make a difference, uh, which is really a good thing. Uh, you've been a leader in the nonprofit community, you know, in the Bay Area, in, in D.C., in, and now in New York, you head up a, a, a company, you know, a company nonprofit there. What are your thoughts about the difference geographically in the areas that you've worked in and what the philanthropic nature of those communities are? Are they all the same or are there differences? I think that there's some commonalities and there's some differences. Um, in the Bay Area, there is a culture, a long-standing culture of philanthropy. Um, many families that have been in the Bay Area for generations just consider it part of their DNA. And then new families come, there's new wealth created. Uh, and so I was exposed to tremendous leadership and multiple generations in the Bay Area. I think it, it's just, um, it's part of being a Bay Area citizen. Um, in, both in Washington and New York, I have been working on the national level. So I certainly get to work with local individuals and foundations and companies, but also with um, those stakeholders around the country. Um, so on a given day, I might be working on a program in West Virginia or in to benefit Native Americans um, throughout the South. Uh, so I, I get to see the broader picture. Um, I think sometimes there's some stereotypes about you know, New York being all about finance people and Washington being all about power. And those stereotypes hold true to a certain extent. But as you and I know, in the world of philanthropy, um, sometimes the most generous people are not the people in the newspaper. They're people who really care about the causes that we're working on. And I think that they exist in every community, large and small. In uh, your current organization, Delivering Good, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how people get involved in the organization, volunteers or charitable giving? Uh, what it, what's the path for the average individual that learns about your organization? Well, we have multiple paths. Certainly, we welcome contributions of all levels. Um, sometimes people hear about the very large product donations, but in order for us to keep our lights on and to keep pursuing our mission, it takes financial support at every level. Um, many people give individually. We also have a lot of people who engage in the workplace. Um, so right now we're working with a major accounting firm and their associates are getting together and doing all kinds of events over the course of the next few months to help support our mission. So we do a lot of workplace giving as well. Um, certainly foundations support us. We have a very active board of directors uh, and an associate board. We call it the associate council. Um, so there are really a lot of different ways in. Um, many times we are contacted by uh, employees at all different levels of the companies that we work with who want to get involved. And so we do a lot of that kind of work in different communities. Uh, we're about to have an event in Washington, D.C. on July 31st in partnership with a local organization, um, Martha's Table. We're super excited about that. Um, and so there are volunteer opportunities from time to time in different communities too. Very good. Poverty, uh, homelessness, or the unhoused uh, seem to be around us uh, since the 1960s and even earlier than that, there's always been problems. Uh, do you think we're any closer to a solution? Well, Gary, when I 
thought about that question and I knew, knew you were going to ask me that. Um, I wanted to make sure not to be political because there certainly are political directions um, that we could take to help alleviate poverty. Um, but I'm going to get biblical on you for a minute. Um, and that is that um, we know that there will never cease to be needy within the land. So that's Deuteronomy. There have always been people in need due to all different circumstances. So whatever political um, solutions are offered, I think that we always are going to have people in need. And the types of needs that I've been privileged really to see as I've traveled around the country and also outside the country, um, it's going to take a long time. And the needs that we address at Delivering Good range from needs created because of systemic racism to issues of addiction in certain parts of this country that have given rise to grandparents raising their grandchildren, um, healthcare challenges. We often visit a, a homeless shelter on the Upper West Side, not far from where I live, um, that's a homeless shelter for the elderly. And many of the people there were working individuals who had a, a health crisis in their family that led to them being without a home. Uh, we know of the challenges of mental illness and how many people, whether it's in California, here in New York, or throughout the country, end up living on the street due to their challenges. Um, so we're talking about not just one challenge that can be solved, but many, many challenges um, that we all will have to work very hard to address. When we look at uh, your career, you've been, you've said you had a, a fine mentor in, in Phyllis Cook. Uh, in your first uh, nonprofit uh, role, uh, and you also have been a mentor to many people, and 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 you promote leadership and and women in business and philanthropy. Tell us about your leadership roundtables that you run right now. We've just completed um, three sessions called the Women of Inspiration Roundtable Series. And this came about because normally in June, we would have a beautiful luncheon celebrating women in business leadership here in New York. Well, we know that's a little premature, um, so we made a switch and we offered three, a series of three and anyone who would like can go to the delivering-good.org website and listen to all three of them. There were three different focus areas, but we had an extraordinary group of women and one gentleman participate in the three sessions. I was privileged to moderate the session on philanthropy. We really wanted to focus on um, lessons that all of these panelists could share with us about their leadership journeys and also their predictions for the future. So I encourage everybody to get to hear from people like Sint Marshall, who's the CEO of the Mavericks, very unusual position, um, to Jacqueline Novogratz, Lily Cantor. We just had an amazing group of, uh, of, of speakers. It looks like uh, Jeff, Jeff Bezos's ex-wife uh, is making a big splash in philanthropy in the last year. Uh, do you see more and more women making and leading the philanthropic efforts? Absolutely. I think that we've come a very long way, um, but there have been great women leaders 
for a long time. You and I share our um, Bay Area roots. And I used to run a program there uh, called Money Matters that was designed to empower women to be able to feel confident in making philanthropic and financial and estate planning decisions. What happened over the years there was that the men wanted to come and hear these great speakers too. Um, so I think that um, there is more and more of a sense of empowerment. What's happening right now with Mackenzie Scott's contributions is truly extraordinary and I'm thrilled for every organization that is receiving a gift from her and I know that it's inspiring women um, of all levels of means to feel like they can do their part and I don't think it takes billions of dollars to make a difference. I should have said Mackenzie Scott but my mind blanked on her name for a moment. Thank you for remembering it for me. That was not the brightest moment of my life here today. Um, but one of the things that I, I, I'm very proud of, and I, we talked before we started recording the podcast about our children and how they've grown up to be really successful adults. And about six months ago, my daughter came to me and said, you know, I've, I've, I've really got my job pretty well. I'm doing good, doing really well now. And it's my time to start giving money to charity each month. Um, how do I start doing a bit, doing that? How do I go about doing it? And she wanted to learn more of that. She's always been part of our philanthropic decisions as a family um, and years ago started making gifts to the Trevor Project, but now she's doing it on her own. And I was very proud to hear that she was wanting to make a monthly contribution on her own to various things and get involved. So uh, I guess I raised her right. We raised our own kids right in some way or another. Well, I am sure that she is giving back in all kinds of wonderful ways. And Gary, I think that we ought to just mention for families that are interested in helping to encourage um, their children, um, whether they're 13 or, or older, um, to be philanthropic, a donor advised fund is a great way to go. They can be established with um, much less funding than a, a private foundation, for example. Um, and I know that I established one in memory of my parents that my kids are the signers on. Um, and so they're able to support the causes that they want to support. So we encourage that. Well, I was heading to the Donor Advice Fund World next, so you kind of made the nice segue there. Uh, I just had a guest on a few weeks back, or months back now, Lisa Greer, who wrote a book, Philanthropic Revolution or philanthropy revolution, I guess it is. And she speaks very much about donor advised funds. Uh, and the problem that we have in that category where people put a lot of money in donor advised funds and let it sit there and don't actually put it to work. Uh, how, how is your take on that? So of course there is a lot of discussion about that now and um, possibly legislation that will mandate um, a particular payout rate for donor advised funds. My experience is, first of all, that they can be an incredibly useful tool uh, for individuals, families, even companies that want to be philanthropic. So I encourage everybody to take a look, especially if they're considering appreciated assets, because there's some great tax benefits that enable you to free up assets you might not otherwise have available to you, like appreciated securities. Um, the experience that I had in, in helping to manage a donor advised fund program in San Francisco was that people gave away a lot or technically they recommended grants um, from their funds. So much in way in excess of the 5% that's mandated for private foundations. Uh, so I know that there is a lot of discussion about this. 
And there may be certain situations in which the funds are sitting, but generally speaking, the statistics that I've seen show that a lot of funding is flowing out of these donor advised funds. So I'm a big proponent. I have my own donor advised fund, obviously. And of course, as you would expect, it's with the San Francisco Federation. Um, uh, even though I live in LA now, uh, and I also, uh, the family established a donor advised fund uh, at Jewish Family and Children's Services years ago. And I remember when the paperwork came, my daughter was in high school and she said, well, what are you doing? I said, it's the name of the fund and the fund was going to be the Gary and Holly Fund. Uh, and she said, wait a minute, my name should be on there too. And I said, well, why is that? She said, because when you're gone, I'll still be contributing to it. So uh, there is a fundamental basis that we teach our children. And I think you're right that uh, it is a good way for uh, children, young adults, uh, and, and uh, to get involved in philanthropy is through a donor advised fund. Over your career, you've had many relationships, obviously, with board members and clients and other professionals. Tell me about one of your favorite experiences uh, from, the, from the past. Well, there are many, and there are some from the past, Gary, and then there's some that take place every single day. So I'll go back a little bit. Um, and when I was thinking about this question, uh, one of the experiences that was most profound um, in my career took place um, in my previous job when I was leading a trip um, to Ethiopia to see the work that my organization was doing there. And I had some remarkable people on the trip. And one day um, in the morning, I took a, a walk with one of our travelers. Uh, we were in Bashirdar, Ethiopia. And this is a woman who is a very spiritual woman. And she said, I'm so moved by everything that I'm seeing here, but there's so many needs at home. How do I reconcile that? How do I decide where I'm gonna make the biggest impact? And we had a, an amazing experience of walking and talking that through because there isn't one answer. And for some people, they can travel halfway around the world to discover that their real calling is at home. And so it's not a zero sum game. And it's also, there's no wrong answer there, um, but to explore that, to have someone recognize as she was experiencing this very profound um, moment that she really wanted to think about her impact and where her as, um, as another favorite donor um, and friend, the Purple Lady of Tiburon, California says what her next assignment was. There you go. That's so I, I've, I've had the opportunity to help people on that, literally on the journey um, as we've traveled around the world and I've led trips in many countries. Um, and that journey of um, how do I get started? How do I get to the next level? And then how do I engage my family members? Uh, one of our speakers um, on one of our Women of Inspiration Roundtable series panels um, was Michelle Lemoyle Gray, who is the chairwoman of a multi-generational family foundation. And working within a family structure brings up so many different issues, but also opportunities. So every, oppor every opportunity I have to help people explore that, um, it's, it's one of my favorite experiences. And the other is to engage in what they call now trust-based philanthropy, um, but what we know as listening, as learning together, as being open, being transparent, admitting failures as well as successes.
Well, one of the great things I love about my consulting practices, part of it is to handle clients as you did for years. I've got a half a dozen uh, clients I have on philanthropic advising and to discuss with them how to match their values with their giving and, and what that impact is. And I remember years ago when I was with Alzheimer's Association, I had a, a, a small donor giving us about $10,000 a year and he was thinking about a bigger gift and whatever. And he said to me over lunch that, and he was an 80 year old guy and his wife was suffering from dementia. And he was saying, I, I want to do good in the world, but right now I'm going to leave X number of dollars to like 200 different organizations. And I said, well, that's really great that you're doing that. Have you thought about the impact of your gift on an organization, you know, a small gift to a big organization like Salvation Army, which he wanted to do versus a bigger gift to a smaller organization where the impact is more. And he said, I never thought of it that way. You know, understanding the difference between what impact your gift's going to have versus uh, the money that you're giving uh, you know, from that. It's always interesting to see what donors have to say and what people, what they learn about giving uh, from us and as we advise them. Uh, let's go in, a, in a, a direction before we wrap up. Um, when we talk about delivering good for a moment, what, what is your website address? How can people get involved in, in, in your work? Well, I hope that everyone will take a look. Um, www.delivering-good.org. Everybody can take a look. They can read about our mission, our vision, our impact. And then feel free to send me an email, lisa at delivering-good.org. What's, what's great, what's interesting about hearing about the work that you do with the retailers and the apparel and all that is that, you know, in my past, I don't know, I don't know if you know this or not, but I was a banker for 15 years before I hit the nonprofit sector. And my specialty was apparel ending in Los Angeles and San Francisco. And I had all the apparel manufacturers that I was working with and everything from small little dress companies like Jonathan Martin uh, to a company that started out with some denim called Guest Jeans and they grew a little big after they left me. Um, but it's amazing, uh, you know, the impact that the, the, the apparel and the retail world has on philanthropy. It's a very good thing to see. Uh, well, people really identify with those brands. Um, and in addition to retail and apparel, we also provide a lot of home goods. When people come out of um, a shelter into some type of um, housing situation, they're often given an apartment, but nothing in there. No, no sheets, no towels, no pots and pans. Um, so we've really expanded quite a bit. And we also provide beauty um, items because people always need shampoo and deodorant. And, and those items are a lot more expensive than people sometimes realize and just can't be prioritized when people are paying rent and buying medicine and childcare. Very, very important point you make there. Um, so let me ask you the final two questions that I have on my list of uh, things to talk about. When you're not working, what do you like to do? Well, Gary, um, family is a big priority. And so love to be with my kids in California and my sister there and cousins all over the country um, and friends in all of the three areas that I call home, the Bay Area, Washington, D.C., and New York. Um, I'm still a very avid cyclist and your listeners don't know that you have a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge behind you. And uh, so cycling is still a big part of my life and, and yoga and all kinds of active, um, active activities. But also 
I wish I had more time to be even more involved in the organizations that I care about. I am on the board of Hosteling International USA, um, very important organization encouraging better understanding of the world and its people through travel. Um, I'm privileged to serve as an, on the advisory committee of Israel another very important global organization. Um, I'm on the investment committee of my Washington DC synagogue, Addis Israel, a place that I really um, find is my spiritual home. So lots of things going on. Very good. Well, thank you so much for being uh, a guest on our show today. Uh, and uh, more importantly, it's good to have you as a colleague and a friend for all these years. And uh, I thank you very much. Thank you, Gary. I look forward to our annual call on our Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at paintedrock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.